National Trust Magazine, Autumn 2020. Hello, I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the National Trust Magazine. Welcome to your Autumn Audio Edition. I'll be taking you through the highlights, but before I do, regular listeners will have observed that I'm not Alan Power, our usual presenter. Alan's the head gardener and estate manager at Stourhead in Wiltshire. He couldn't present the audio magazine last issue, thanks to the sudden lockdown and the poor signal at Stourhead, where he lives. I wanted to let you know that, to our sorrow, he's leaving the Trust after almost 25 years. He wanted to say farewell to you, our listeners, and wish you all well. So as lockdown eased, I managed to catch up with him. We weren't able to do your last audio magazine the way we wanted to because of everything that was going on. So what have you been... What have you been doing in the meantime? Lockdown was interesting at Stourhead. I had 14 days pretty much on my own, which was amazing, if not a little bit lonely. But it, it did feel, you know, working through that period of lockdown, it felt like a desperately important thing to be doing because I couldn't stop doing what I was doing. I was the only one here for a while and then we had half, roughly half the team back working and looking after the place. And it was really important because I said, we have to be ready to open. You know, when people come, they're going to want to come back to Stourhead. And yes, we can only do certain tasks, but I want to be able to open the gates the minute we can so that people can come out and, and enjoy what we've done. So it felt really important. We were looking after something very precious for everybody else, not just for us. So it's magnificent to see how excited people are. You know, I saw a lady the other day with her camera just spinning circles on the bank in front of the Pantheon. She was that pleased to be back. That just really shows us what it means to people. You know, people were desperate to get to see what we do. So it's going to be hard to leave after all this time. How long have you been here? Um, I've been at Stourhead on and off for 24 years. It's been half of my life. I'm 48 this year. I've been nearly 25 years with the trust and you know I've put my heart and soul into it and it's been it's been amazing my last day is going to be hard I've had a bunch of keys looking after this place as the garden estate manager for 17 years I'm dreading handing them over because that's a big thing my time working with the magazine it was I've really enjoyed it sharing the work that we do as an organization with our members it was a really important thing for me to do my dad suffers with Parkinson's disease and he listens to it. And I hope that your listeners have enjoyed it as well. And I just want to say goodbye to everyone out there because it's, um, it's been lovely to work for the Trust. And, you know, I work for our members and it's, it's been amazing. So thank you. Thank you, Alan. That was Alan Power. And we wish him all the very best for the future. After a summer like no other, thank you for your support of the National Trust. We are delighted to be able to welcome some of you back to the places you love... We hope those who can't yet visit continue to enjoy the articles, videos and podcasts on our website and the member emails we're sending. If you're not receiving the emails, do sign up at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash myNT. We're taking you behind the scenes for a sneak peek into what's been happening here at the Trust over recent months. Director General Hilary McGrady shares her reflections and her silver linings. We have stories from staff about their time looking after properties and making them ready for your return, including some of the wildlife that's put in an appearance in unexpected places. We also have a wonderful selection of member stories of how you've spent your time during lockdown and some of those joyful first visits back to your favourite haunts.
start, Director General Hilary McGrady reflects on a summer like no other and thanks every one of you for your support of the National Trust. Hilary's words are read by Olivia Vinnell. I'm sitting in my study at home, looking out at green fields, watching a pair of swallows swooping low over the shaggy hedge at the end of the garden. My house is full of noise again, because the children are all back from university, and I can smell my daughter's latest baking experiment waft from the kitchen. It is hard to comprehend the surreal contrast of a world that is lush, beautiful and content, with the harsh reality of the coronavirus crisis gripping the nation. Harsh only starts to describe it. Coronavirus has had an extraordinary impact on all our lives. At this point, over 45,000 people in the UK have died, and many thousands more are reeling from the impact of loss and suffering. The economic consequence of lockdown is gradually revealing itself, its true reality yet to be endured. The National Trust has not been immune. Our early aspiration to be able to stay open for the good of the nation's health quickly became untenable as lockdown was announced. From the outset, we followed government guidance on what steps to take and closed our properties on the 20th of March. At the time of writing, more than 130 of our places are open for pre-booked visits. It's taken a mammoth effort from our teams to introduce a visit booking system, and although there have been some teething issues, hundreds of thousands of people have now been able to safely visit the places they love, with many telling us how glad they are to be back. It was only in January that I marked our 125th anniversary by announcing our ambition to plant 20 million trees, establish green corridors in UK cities, and reach carbon net zero by 2030. The year was to be spent celebrating some of the Trust's achievements and focusing on the benefits of getting close to nature. All of this was to be in addition to our day-to-day -day conservation and access work that brings so much joy to people. Best laid plans are, of course, often disrupted, and the Trust has been around long enough to have experienced and survived major events, from world wars to foot and mouth disease. Our resilience is born out of the nation's love of the places we care for. Once again, our members have rallied and supported us throughout this turbulent time. When we closed our doors on the 20th of March, we effectively lost 40% of our income for the year. No visitors means no income from our cafes, shops or events. Add to that all the other income areas under threat, from fundraising to rents, and we estimate a total loss of about £200 million in 2020. Not the birthday present I had in mind for our anniversary year. This sharp drop in the Trust's income threatens our conservation work at a time when people's access to nature, wildlife and green spaces has become more important than ever. Please do consider a donation if you can. Your donation will make a difference, helping us to continue the essential work of 125 years caring for places so that people and nature can thrive. I have been uplifted by the many staff and supporters who have been in touch to tell me about their experiences of lockdown, some have begun or rediscovered hobbies. Some have been struck by the kindness of strangers. Others have appreciated the time and quiet to slow down, take stock and feel more connected to nature. Undoubtedly, there have been some silver linings to this crisis. 
The first is the clear and resounding demand from the public to have access to green space, places to walk, exercise and just be. The Trust has been focused on this from the day co-founder Octavia Hill said, We all want quiet. We all want beauty. We all need space. The coronavirus crisis has shone a new light on the inequality of access to green space, particularly in urban areas. Just as the government at the end of the Second World War had the vision to establish our national parks at the same time as they created the NHS, now is the time to invest in the green spaces so essential to the health and happiness of the millions living in towns and cities. The second has been the incredible rise in community action, the desire to help, respond and be part of the fight against the virus. From the weekly clap for carers to the thousands of volunteers delivering supplies or making personal protective equipment, the nation has wanted to play its part. Again, the Trust has benefited from the support of its volunteers and I am so grateful for the hours they give us every week, whether that's supporting us from home or helping us carefully reopen our places. We've only been able to welcome back a small number of volunteers so far, but we're looking forward to inviting more back as we open more places. The sheer enthusiasm and creativity that have been revealed over these last few weeks point to an even greater opportunity for people to use our places to get involved. The temporary closure of our properties has given us time to reflect. As places gradually reopen, you'll see changes at some sites. We want to make the most of the rich variety of histories, buildings and collections in our care and offer different types of trust experiences. The third and final silver lining has been the simple but true realisation that when humans get out of the way, nature and our environment thrive. We have all seen the reports of vastly improved air quality due to reduced travel and we at the Trust have had wonderful stories of badgers frolicking in our gardens, birds nesting in our car parks and flowers sprouting from pathways. As we emerge from these turbulent times, things will have changed. As this magazine reaches you, I suspect we will still be required to socially distance. There may well still be properties fully or partially closed. We will have less resource available to us to spend on conservation and improvement, but out of every adversity comes some opportunity, and I am determined that we will double down on our efforts to bring people to nature. We will tap into the deep sense of community that has bubbled up and use some of our properties to better service that community need, and we will try to hold on to all the new ways of working we have got used to, from video conferencing to partnership working. And, of course, our commitment to making everyone welcome remains firm. After all, we were founded to serve the whole of society. Over the past year, we have introduced inclusive leadership training, supported networks for staff from underrepresented groups, piloted different approaches to recruiting, and partnered with specialist organizations such as Alzheimer's Society. The pandemic has brought into sharp focus society's inequalities, further emphasized by the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter campaign, alongside the Home Truths Report, from the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations. The report challenges us to act on racism and deliver diversity in the charity sector. It reminds us that we still have a lot of urgent work to do to become the diverse, inclusive organisation we want to be.
Inclusion is our priority. Creating a culture where everyone feels respected, valued and able to get involved. We will be here for you, bringing you nature, beauty and history every day. Without the continued support of our members, we would not have been able to weather this crisis. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart. We've loved hearing what our supporters have been doing while you've been unable to visit and how you've spent your time at home. Creativity has blossomed during lockdown. Supporters have honed skills or learned new ones, using them to recall fun times at trust places. Dave Wynn from Cheshire said, I've just finished two paintings of Speak Hall in Liverpool from photos I took in late spring last year. One's of the fabulous Bluebell Woods. The second is of the house and rose gardens just coming into bloom. With lockdown, my wife and I are missing so much our visits to National Trust sites, especially here in the Northwest, so this has helped. Alison Johnson from Surrey said, I have been working on creative projects over the shutdown. My first project was a lino print of a picture I saw at Anglesey Abbey. I've just started working on the companion piece. Whether for their own reasons or as part of Plant Life's No Mow May campaign, supported by the Trust, those who decided not to mow their grass this spring were well rewarded. Peter Neer from West Sussex didn't cut his front garden and was amazed to see so many flowers. He said, They gave so much pleasure during this difficult time. Next year we will again leave the grass uncut early in the year. Gillian Todd from Cheshire took some time during lockdown to count her blessings. A mother duck with nine ducklings living in her garden topped her list. She said, I also have two beautiful goldfish with nine tiny offspring, a frog, a toad and a newt in my pond. There are so, so many bees on my alliums, not to mention the blue tits nesting in my bird box and the bullfinches, nuthatches and woodpeckers on my bird feeders. Logan Wise from London, who's in year five, was asked by his teacher to write a poem in lockdown. He wrote about his garden first thing in the morning. I walk out into the back garden in the morning sunshine. I take a deep breath of the first air of the day. Purple alliums sprouting up for the first time. This heat is unusual for May, especially as it is only nine. The birds chirp softly on the boughs of the trees. The trampoline, big and wide, our cat Arthur lies. Wisteria and jasmine attract the buzzing bees. The cobweb on our swing holds some unfortunate flies. Scottish heather reminds my mum of her home. Wild mint and climbing roses combined to create perfect scent. The foxes at night here roam, unless we pitch up our tent. Lettuce, radishes and spring onions will be ready in a few weeks. The wooden swing, solid and strong, is the place of many conversations. Our vegetable net protects against scavenging beaks. I swing out over my garden and feel satisfaction. Some supporters have been making the most of lockdown time to help the Trust. Ten-year-old Otis Ives from Hampshire raised nearly £810 for the NHS and the National Trust after walking 17 kilometres between his family's farms on VE Day. He said it was a fun way to enjoy the local fields and woods while supporting a good cause. Mrs Jennifer Howells from Staffordshire sent £20 and wrote to say, 
As I'm not spending any money while in lockdown, I'm sending some money each week to two charities which I usually support. I know it will only be a drop in the ocean for you, but if many people do the same, it will help. Six-year-old Loena and three-year-old Sonara Hanford from Cornwall raised £367 doing a sponsored run. They said, We love nature and wildlife. We know we need to look after our planet and our environment, and we want to help. Meanwhile, National Trust staff have been looking after the places you love so they're ready for your return, and finding new ways to help keep you connected to the National Trust while you've been unable to visit. Staff acted quickly to make properties safe. As lockdown hit, quiet settled and wildlife started to venture out. Just a few staff remained unfurloughed to look after places. They missed their visitors and colleagues and shared some of the beauty they witnessed as they went about their daily duties. The lack of feet on the Giant's Causeway in County Antrim allowed wonderful sea pinks to burst between the stones. Our rangers say there have never been so many and they've never grown so tall. Peregrines were reported living at Corfe Castle in Dorset for the first time. The pair has successfully reared three chicks. An adorable family of great tits nested inside a water pump at Dudmaston in Shropshire, and a pipistrelle bat took up residence in a wall at one of the Lake District's busiest car parks. The Irish whale and dolphin group spotted orcas in Strangford Loch. They're a rare sight here, and the rangers, who were moving cattle and sheep on a barge at the other end of the loch, missed them. Next time. As places began cautiously to reopen, it was emotional for both staff and visitors. Staff were excited to welcome visitors back, albeit in a different way from usual. Visitors were swift to show their joy at being back too. Heather Jeremy, general manager at Blickling in Norfolk, said, Things have been going really well. People are so very grateful to be here. We've had two people wanting to get memberships and many others saying thank you on the way out. I felt emotional when an NHS nurse said, you can't even imagine what it means to me to be able to come here and enjoy such a beautiful place and to spend several hours out and about without a mask on. It makes such a difference. Lydia O'Gorman took advantage of Felbrig in Norfolk reopening. Having pre-booked our parking, we spent the afternoon walking and picnicking in the grounds of the estate. It felt overwhelmingly good to be having a little adventure and change of scenery, despite being under an hour from home. Thank you so much for having such a well-thought-out system, National Trust. I may have had a little cry as we parked up. These are just some of the stories and memories that reflect on how our members and staff made the most of this extraordinary time. And now, for the News Roundup. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Neka Akoya and Glenn McCready to tell you about what else has been going on around the Trust. The Trust has acquired 3.6 hectares, 9 acres, of land in the heart of the wild Exmoor coastal landscape. The rolling hills and deep wooded valleys were immortalised in R.D. Blackmore's book Lorna Doon, which was published in 1869 and inspired by the Exmoor landscape. The area is popular for walking, riding and cycling, and is well connected by public rights of way to other trust places, including Watersmeet, a stretch along the East Lynn River that features in the novel. 
The countryside in and around the area is a great place to see nature, including red deer, peregrines and ancient oaks, says lead ranger Kev Davies. The newly acquired site, which was partly funded by the Neptune Coastline Campaign and a bequest from Mrs. M. L. Chapel, includes Lorna Doon Farm and nearby Cloud Farm Campsite. The Trust plans to improve the facilities and open up the landscape to encourage more people to enjoy and benefit from spending time in nature. Completion of the sale took place before lockdown significantly affected the Trust's finances. A report into the historic connections between trust places and slavery and colonialism is to be published this autumn. The research has been compiled by Dr Corrine Fowler of the University of Leicester, with involvement from trust curators and other researchers. The report will help support new interpretation of our places and collections. It will be available to read at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash colonial dash history. We are delighted to announce that the National Trust Council has reappointed Tim Parker as the Trust's chair for a third three-year term. Our chairs generally serve two terms, but the Council agreed that an exceptional third term was warranted to provide continuity during a period when the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic pose major challenges for the Trust. Tim's appointment runs until November 2023. The Grade II listed ornamental bridge at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire has been restored to its former glory two years after it was badly damaged by vandalism. The bridge, which is more than 200 years old, was rebuilt using original stonework recovered from the River Poulter, with additional stone created by conservation specialists. The coronavirus pandemic has caused a sharp drop in the National Trust's income threatening our conservation work at a time when people's access to nature, wildlife and green spaces is more important than ever. We've developed some new ways for people to support the Trust safely, as we know many of you are keen to help. While visiting our places, you can now text to donate £3 or £5 to help support our work. We're also testing a new contactless tap-to-give device at several of our places. You can donate online to support your favourite National Trust place or the area of conservation that matters most to you, such as coast, gardens, nature and wildlife, or buildings and collections. However you may choose to support, it will make a real difference. On your next visit, look out for text to donate and tap to give, or donate online today at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash donate. And those were some of the highlights from the news. Our next feature is from the Director-General, our regular column by Hilary McGrady. I hope this finds you, your family and your friends, safe and well after what has been a really difficult few months. I hope too that you find some all-important time this summer to slow down to read, learn and play at home or at your local trust place, perhaps helped by the great summer escape ideas on our website. Slowly but surely, the trust we all love is coming back to life. Over the summer, we've been opening up more and more of our parks and gardens and we're continuing to open houses wherever we can. After a colossal amount of work from our teams, 
we launched our first property booking system so that people could visit us safely. We went from 70,000 tickets in the first week of reopening to half a million tickets by early July. A huge and a complex feat. I'm sorry there were frustrations at times and thank you for your patience. I hope that by now, many of you will have had the chance to spend some time at your favourite places. Many people have shared pictures of their first visits and told us about their experiences. Thank you, it is wonderful to have you back. What a lot has changed for the Trust and for our society since my last column. It's natural, as in all moments of crisis, that we want to look back, to reflect and honour those that we've lost. The need to remember and to gather in grief are fundamentally human. Places in our care of the Trust have been long associated with acts of commemoration of all kinds, from the great gift of the Lake District Fells to Danny Boyle's Pages of the Sea, Centenary's tribute to the Armistice in 2018. We are working with partners to create a number of permanent living places for reflection where communities can remember this moment in our time, but also feel hope together. I'll be sharing more details with you in the future columns. In recent months, I've heard from a number of you who are interested in what we're doing to bring out the links between our places and legacies of colonialism. This is a long-standing commitment, and we're all grateful to all of those who have shared their views about how we do this in a really sensitive manner that reflects the importance of the topic. You can hear more on track six. Although we are starting to find a new normal, these are still extraordinarily difficult times for the Trust and our friends and colleagues in the wider heritage sector. We've mitigated the impact of coronavirus as best we can. The next task is to press the reset button and work towards building a leaner, more flexible organisation. There have been really tough decisions to make, and they were made with a very heavy heart. But they will steady us to help nature and people to thrive for another 125 years. While so much else has changed, our strategy has not. We're still about connecting people with their heritage and giving them more equal access to nature a need so heavily underlined by the lockdown. The pandemic has caused a sharp and a sustained drop in our income, threatening our conservation work at a time when people's access to nature and wildlife and green spaces has become more important than ever. Your support has never been more valued than right now. Whether you stay in a trust holiday cottage, enjoy a coffee on your next visit, or make a donation online by using our new text to donate or tap to give facility as described in track three. It all makes a difference. Thank you. In this next story, the secretary, Paul Boniface, explains why there is no annual general meeting this year and the Trust's plans for a members broadcast. In the summer magazine, we explained that due to the rapidly changing situation, we were considering arrangements for the 2020 annual general meeting, which would usually take place in the autumn. After much deliberation, the National Trust Board of Trustees has decided that sadly, there will not be an AGM held this year because of the impacts of coronavirus and future uncertainty. We've been delighted to welcome many members to previous AGMs 
and in recent years we've seen more than 500 members joining us in person. However, because of the potential risks of large gatherings, the Board of Trustees has decided the AGM should not go ahead. This was a tough decision, as I'm sure many of you would have been looking forward to the event. The temporary constitutional changes required have been agreed with the Charity Commission and are supported by the National Trust Council. Members' resolutions submitted this year will be rolled over to 2021. We'd hoped to be able to hold an AGM online instead, but this hasn't been possible in the current time frame. We are making plans to enable us to do so in future. It is important to us that members can still ask questions of trustees and senior staff, so there will be an online members' broadcast on the 7th of November. You will have an opportunity to hear from the Trust's Chair and Director-General and to ask questions. The Board and Council have also cancelled this year's elections to the Council. Again, the temporary constitutional changes allowing this to happen have been approved by the Charity Commission. With no elections this year, all existing elected members of the Council will serve one additional year. The Council elections will proceed as usual in 2021. If you have any questions to submit for the Members Broadcast, please email ntmemberbroadcast at nationaltrust.org.uk by the 23rd of October 2020. We will respond to as many questions as we can. For the latest updates, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash members dash broadcast. Tiger D'Souza is the Volunteering, Participation and Inclusion Director for the National Trust. He reflects on the Trust's role in promoting a fairer society. The emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement this spring was a significant moment. Shortly afterwards, the Association of Chief Executives of Voluntary Organisations released a report titled Home Truths, Undoing Racism and Delivering Real Diversity in the Charity Sector. The report outlined that systemic and institutional racism was prevalent. At the National Trust, we have a duty to play our part in creating a fairer, more equitable society. We have two responsibilities. The first is to make sure everyone feels welcome at the National Trust. That sense of belonging extends to our staff, volunteers and everyone who engages with us, from long-standing members to those visiting us for the first time. We've been working with our senior leaders, asking them to focus their efforts on creating inclusive cultures and access within their teams so that everyone feels valued, engaged and able to get involved. We've also refreshed and launched a new set of organisational values, which reflect the kind of organisation we want to be and ground everything we do in a shared understanding of what it really means to make everyone welcome. Though we recognise a need to improve experiences for a broader ethnocultural audience and the people of colour who work or volunteer with us, we know that we must also look at other areas of our provision. These include the accessibility of our places and our approach to interpretation and programming. Our work on inclusion is not limited to ethnicity and we remain committed to other areas of improvement including our partnership with Alzheimer's Society, to become dementia-friendly by 2022. 
rooted in our charitable objectives, is a responsibility to preserve nature, beauty, and history for the benefit of the nation. If only a proportion of the population feel comfortable or welcome at our places, we are collectively failing in delivering our founding principles. As Octavia Hill, one of the Trust's founders, explained in 1883, the need of quiet, the need of air, and I believe the sight of sky and of all things growing, seem human needs, common to all. Our second responsibility is to present the colonial history of our places in a thoughtful way that promotes productive debate and reflection. The stories we tell, or often choose not to tell, must be addressed at the same time as we review and improve our organisational culture and individual experiences. In the autumn, we're publishing research detailing the colonial links to our places. Our teams are now working hard to translate that knowledge into how we talk about and present those places and items within our collections. Some have asked if our work in this space is just a knee-jerk reaction to Black Lives Matter. We have been doing this work for a number of years, because legacies of colonialism and slavery are a real part of the historic fabric in our hands. Our research and feedback we have received have also told us that visitors are curious about the range of different stories connected to our places. We believe they want us to explore these stories, including those that are sensitive or controversial, provided they are authentic to the specific place, that interpretation is based on sound historical research, and that we help them to explore and draw conclusions for themselves. However, there is no doubt that the Black Lives Matter movement has caused us to look at the pace of what we do. We are a charity committed to inclusion. At the time of the most recent surge of Black Lives Matter activity, inclusive leadership training was already being delivered to senior staff across the Trust. We've curated national programmes to share stories which have often gone untold, such as Prejudice and Pride in 2017, which explored LGBTQ plus heritage. Our current colonial countryside project with Leicester University and primary school children is exploring the colonial links of our places. More than a moment, this feels like the beginning of a movement, a time of change that I hope will lead to greater equity at the trust and wider society. For more information regarding inclusion at the trust, please go to nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash inclusion. Head curator Sally-Anne Huxtable explains how she became smitten with the ceramics of William de Morgan and why she loves the peacocks on this bowl of his in particular. My childhood was a very rural one in which art, museums and heritage didn't really feature. It was only in my later teens that I started to develop an interest in art and a love of decorative art and design came about a decade later when I found myself starting a part-time PhD on Victorian pre-Raphaelitism, aestheticism and arts and crafts. At that time, I was living in London and on a whim, I volunteered at the De Morgan Centre then based at Wandsworth Library. I was immediately smitten with the work of William Friend de Morgan and with working in a museum. 
this proved to be a transformational moment in my life. Born in 1839, de Morgan was studying art at the Royal Academy when in 1863, artist Henry Holiday introduced him to William Morris at Morris's Red Lion Square studio. It seems likely that this meeting prompted de Morgan to drop out of his studies and pursue a career in decorative art. De Morgan initially designed stained glass and ceramics, which Morris marketed and used in his decorative schemes. Around this time, experiments with firing both stained glass and ceramics led de Morgan to recreate the gorgeous metallic sheen of medieval hispano moresque luster ceramics. These were luxury ceramics produced in Muslim Spain in the 14th and 15th centuries. They were characterised by a use of intricate pattern, stylized creatures and iridescent luster glazes, all of which de Morgan sought to emulate through his own designs. In 1872, having burned the roof off his studio in Fitzroy Square during one of his experiments, de Morgan opened a pottery in Chelsea where he concentrated on ceramics and perfected his luster techniques, as well as developing a range of richly coloured Persian ware influenced by the Iznik tiles of the Ottoman Empire. The ruby red lusterware bowl I've chosen is from the collection of the Arts and Crafts House of Standen in West Sussex. The bowl was designed by William de Morgan and beautifully decorated with stylized peacocks and pinks by Charles Passenger, one of the artists in de Morgan's pottery. Underneath, it is signed with passenger's initials and concentric circles of red glaze. For me, this bowl is a perfect example of de Morgan's genius as a designer. He brings together those fantastical medieval Hispano-Moresque techniques and motifs, such as the peacock, with 19th century aesthetic and arts and crafts sensibilities that also favoured this dazzling bird. The symbolism of the peacock holds a special place in my heart. The birds featured so strongly in my PhD that once I gained my doctorate, I celebrated by having a large peacock tattoo across my back. The shimmering ruby luster of this bowl echoes the shimmering feathers of the bird that symbolises metamorphosis and alchemy, and the creation of the glaze is a form of alchemic transformation from base pigments and minerals to glorious iridescence. Although successive potteries at Merton Abbey and Sands End were never financially viable concerns, and in 1907 de Morgan finally gave up ceramics to become a successful novelist, his influence on the world of ceramics is immeasurable. I will always be grateful for the way his works helped to change my life and set me on the road to this amazing career. Lockdown has helped us all to appreciate natural moments more than ever. Join Andy Beer, author of the beautiful book Everyday Nature, as he journeys through seasonal traditions linked to nature's calendar. No previous expertise required. If you are really lucky, you might catch a glimpse of a bearded tit or otter or purple emperor butterfly. I see this turn of phrase a lot in books about nature, and I'm sorry to break it to you, but you probably won't. Not unless you accompany an expert to exactly the place where these rare things are found at exactly the right time of year, and you look where the expert is pointing. I've been fascinated by nature for most of my life, 
but there are still lots of flora and fauna I have never seen. Not only do I find this type of advice discouraging, but it also reinforces the notion that being interested in nature is simply a quest to fill in some long list. Somehow, nature has become the preserve of the experts, to be appreciated only in a prescribed way, with the right equipment. You have to get the names right. You are required to dismiss some beautiful things because they are not native, which is ironic, given that just about everything that lives in this country had to invade after the ice last retreated more than 11,000 years ago. Trouble is, if there is always something brighter, rarer or more exciting just around the next corner, you miss the everyday nature right there in front of you. So I wrote a book, Everyday Nature, How Noticing Nature Can Quietly Change Your Life. It is about how to notice and take delight from the commonplace, the ordinary, the everyday. Marking the cycle of the seasons and taking time to look closely. The joy of a lawn dotted with daisies or the burst of a blackberry on your tongue. During the book writing process, I have had to spend time re-educating myself about the apparently simple business of how to see. Everyday nature is not about heading off to distant parts in order to find a creature. Rather, it is about looking at what is under your nose. In June, the National Trust released the results of a YouGov poll that has revealed how an increased relationship with nature appears to have helped people across the UK since the coronavirus pandemic outbreak in March. Findings showed that more than two-thirds of adults agreed that spending time noticing the nature around them has made them feel happy during lockdown. More than half the population also agreed that they plan to make a habit of spending time in nature once things go back to normal. The results tell us that time spent in nature or seeing nature has had a positive effect on mood and hopefully also on mental well-being during this difficult time. There's mounting evidence of a positive impact on mental health and well-being from everyday connections with nature. The fact that people are recognising how nature has helped them during the crisis can only be a good thing for people, nature and wildlife. It's easy to think of nature as something fragile that lives far away. Instead, it is something huge and powerful that is all around us. If we take the time to slow down and observe it, as so many of us have been doing of late, then the turning of the seasons can add great meaning to our lives. The autumn equinox on the 22nd of September is the day of equal light and dark. It marks a turning point in the seasons, where, from this point on, the long nights of winter begin. I don't like the arrival of the darkness and the thought of cold winter nights ahead, so I find it helps to look forward to the pleasure of seasonal traditions. The period from now to the shortest day of the year breaks into two neat six-week parts. From the autumn equinox until Halloween, there's the richness of autumn to enjoy, with its colour, fruits and fungi. From Halloween until Christmas, there are just a few weeks of cold austerity to fill with the appreciation of colourful stems, bark and frost, as well as warming fires and seasonal parties. Then, on the 21st of December, the year turns, and every day brings growth and light. This makes things so much easier.
Perhaps more than other seasons, autumn is a time of traditions. Rituals and ceremonies around the harvest date back centuries. Other ancient traditions, such as Halloween, are a cultural mishmash of folk tales and celebrations which have been evolving since Celtic times. Today, many people enjoy their own annual traditions inspired by the season. Families take time to walk through local woodland and enjoy the colourful shades. Many make sure to visit a local apple festival to sample cider or apple juice in a celebration of nature's bounty. Autumn is the season of the hedgerow fruits. To find the sweetest blackberry, you might need to taste fruit from a few different bramble plants, as there are hundreds of variants. Rose hips are the red-orange fruit of the dog rose. Rich in vitamin C, they were used to make rose hip syrup during wartime, when people needed all the hedgerow gifts they could get. A jam made from damsons sounds quintessentially British, but the damson is a gift from past invaders. Our humble damson is actually the Damascene plum, a fruit most likely brought here from Syria by the Romans. You can find whole hazelnuts under a hazel tree, alongside the many which have been cracked open by squirrels. Hazel trees are amazing, because they can be cut to the stump again and again. They simply throw out more and more straight shoots, which can be used to weave fences around borders or left to grow thick into a druid-style walking stick. They are my favourite of all trees, useful, indomitable, and wise. An October beechwood is a wonder of tone and texture. A favourite of the Victorians, they were often planted as a feature on downs or hillsides. The trees have smooth grey bark, and the leaves cast such a heavy shade that barely anything grows beneath. The leaves turn from green to amber and then brown, before falling to make a deep leaf litter. Find a beechwood to wander through with friends or family. Mark a date to do it again next year. An autumn tradition has been made. You can buy Andy's book, Everyday Nature, which has a seasonal tip for every day of the year, not just for autumn, from nationaltrustbooks.co.uk. Every purchase you make from our retail collections helps us look after special places. As part of our anniversary celebrations, an innovative photographic book and exhibition tell the stories of 125 people and their relationships with the Trust. The National Trust was set up 125 years ago by three visionary people. At a time when industrialization threatened to banish a way of life where people were connected to the natural world, Octavia Hill, Sir Robert Hunter and Canon Hardwick Rawnsley understood the importance of looking after outdoor spaces and historic environments for the benefit of the nation. If they had tried to work alone, they would have failed. Even in those early days, the fledgling National Trust depended on people who believed in its cause and wanted to help it. Some donated property or expertise. Others came together to raise money. Many joined as members, their subscriptions invaluable as the Trust grew, their interests helping to shape its approach as it developed. Today, the Trust looks after more than 250,000 hectares of farmland, 780 miles of coast, 
and more than 500 historic properties, gardens and nature reserves. We depend upon our people as much as ever. More than 53,000 volunteers, sorely missed during the lockdown, bring experience and dedication, working alongside staff who dedicate themselves to our cause. Tenants of trust houses and farms maintain communities and make sure ambitions around farming for nature are met and traditional skills retained. Without our donors and fundraisers, vital conservation would cease. Without our millions of members, no work would be possible. Simply by keeping your membership going during lockdown and visiting and enjoying trust shops, cafes or holidays when allowed, you play your part in looking after nature, history and beauty for everyone, forever. A portrait of the National Trust, 125 stories for 125 years, is the Trust's thank you to all our supporters, past, present and future. The project, which took over 18 months to complete, is a historical record of the Trust as it is today, a celebration of the time and support people have given to the charity and a beautifully curated addition to our collections. Once restrictions allow, an exhibition will be touring the Trust. Meanwhile, there's a beautiful book to enjoy and an online exhibition and podcast series. The photographic style is influenced by the work of Irving Penn, 1917 to 2009, an American photographer with a formidable reputation for still life and portraiture, who particularly enjoyed shooting within the controlled confines of a studio setting. During 1950 to 1951, Penn took formal portraits of everyday people wearing their work clothes with their tools and wares, using an opaque screen as a backdrop. Rather than separate the people from the places as Penn did, head of photography Chris Lacey and photographer John Miller toured the country with a semi-transparent screen and studio lights. The results, in deliberately stylized black and white, reveal each setting but direct the viewer's gaze onto the person. Here we bring you the stories of some of the people that feature in the book. First, Sam King who is a conservation assistant at Colleton Fishacre in Devon. Colleton Fishacre is a 1920s seven-bedroom country home that was built for the Doyley Cart family, who set up the Savoy Theatre and Hotel. I've been here about a year now. My job is preventing the deterioration of the collection. We don't repair or restore things unless we have to. I'm quite heavily tattooed, including a face tattoo, and originally I assumed I wouldn't get the job. I used to put makeup on to hide it, but then I forgot one day. Our house and collections manager caught me trying to cover up, and she just said there was no need. It's been a huge thing for my confidence to know that I can now look how I want and not have any backlash. Marie Bartholomew is a volunteer garden guide. Thirty years ago, Marie started volunteering at her local National Trust property, Virginia and Leonard Wolfe's country retreat, Monk's House, in East Sussex. After word got out that Marie's father had been Leonard Wolfe's gardener, the room where she stewarded became very crowded. I only called into Monk's house to ask about volunteering because it was the nearest property. I didn't tell anyone that Dad had been Leonard's gardener. When it got out, people started asking questions, so I decided it'd be easier if I came once a month to answer questions in the garden. Leonard was very kind. He gave me half a crown when I won a scholarship to the girls' grammar school. 
One day he asked what I was reading, and when I replied I'd read all the books in the school, he said, Right, I'm going to find you a book. That proved difficult. Virginia had to come downstairs and they searched until they found two books they thought I could manage. The King of the Golden River by John Ruskin and The Water Babies by Charles Kingsley. After Dad retired, Leonard used to visit, bringing fruit from the garden, and after Dad died, he gave Mum a Siamese kitten as a companion. Someone asked me, Why do you still do this when you're almost ninety? I said, Because it's like coming home. I just seem to belong in the garden. James Drury is a member and volunteer at Longshore Estate in Derbyshire. Longshore Estate is a 1,600-acre area of parkland and heather moorland in the Peak District. James began volunteering there with his carer Andrew as part of his Duke of Edinburgh's award, helping to keep the tea room and trails tidy. His sunny smile and charisma have led him to become a popular member of the team. James's father Peter says that being outside in beautiful surroundings and socialising with his carer as well as the staff and visitors make James feel good. James has profound learning disability and autism. He has no speech, so all communication tends to be through photographs, which make a visual timetable that shows James what he has to do. James's volunteering forms part of his routine. It gives him a social life, as he's spending time outdoors meeting other people, whether that's trust staff or families out walking on the moors. James is part of the team at Longshore, and he's a great example of what can be achieved with the right support and the right attitude. He's showing that someone with learning difficulty, working for the National Trust can be a very positive thing. Not just for the Trust, but for everyone. Medina Dix is head coachman at Irvig in Wrexham. Many years ago, I did a Level 2 NVQ for carriage driving and horse care. I did it for my own reasons and never thought it would help me to get a job. But with that qualification, I got this job. Now I'm hoping I might draw my pension at the Trust. I was here for six months before my boss left and I was asked if I'd like to step up. I'm the Trust's only head coachman. Traditionally, I would have been male and responsible for purchasing and overseeing the York family's carriages and horses. Horses and donkeys were really important to them. Simon York, a magistrate, once found an abandoned baby donkey and brought it home in a basket and raised it. That's why we have donkeys here now. I love learning about the horse and carriage-related history and how it fits in with the house. We've got four enormous horses here, two donkeys and five historic carriages. It's the animals that keep me here. They are my passion. But it's also Irvig itself. Ian Edmonds is curator of birds at Wadston in Buckinghamshire. I came to Wadston for work experience while I was in college and enjoyed it so much that I came back as a volunteer. When I was planning to go to university, they offered me a junior position. I had to think about it quite hard and asked my granddad for advice. He said, what are you going to do with a degree? When I said I'd probably end up doing what I was doing, he said, take the job. So I took the job, but I also managed to do my degree part-time with the help of the trust. Working with live animals, I need to be close by, so I live on site. That means, of course, I end up taking my work home. On my kitchen table, I have an incubator and a brooder, and there's bird food in the fridge. The type of birds we have here are particularly hard to work with, 
but we've earned a very good reputation for breeding. We've worked with barley miners and sent some back to barley. Blue-crowned laughing thrushes have a world population of about 500, and 40 to 50 have been bred here. We work with lots of other organisations, and though we're a small part of many larger projects, they all add up to make a difference. I love it when we do behind-the-scenes tours for children. When the children see the chicks being hand-raised, they have that look of wonder in their eyes. Sometimes I look at the world and worry, but when I see these children, all smiles and fascination, I think, actually, the future might be OK after all. Mukith Mia is a volunteering and community involvement manager in Birmingham and the Black Country. I want to create a level playing field for everyone, especially in the next generation. I do not want my three daughters ever to feel like I often did, sidelined by the education system and the jobs market, needing to make constant compromises simply to fit into society's ideal of what a son of an immigrant should be like, even though I was born here and see myself as a British Asian. These experiences have made me more determined to make a difference whenever I can. I've had a number of roles during my ten years at the Trust. They've all had the aim of making the back-to-backs and other Trust places in Birmingham and the Black Country more accessible to people who might feel the Trust isn't necessarily for them. Since I started, we've run outreach schemes to connect with young people. We've also made it easier for non-traditional volunteers to join the Trust. The Trust couldn't exist without the love and dedication of its supporters. Perhaps in the future, another photographer will record a similar moment for our 250th anniversary. Let's hope so. Meet all 125 people featured in the project, read their stories and delve behind the scenes. A portrait of the National Trust, 125 stories for 125 years, is available to buy online for £10. Visit shop.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash 125-portraits-book. Finally, ahead of a touring exhibition once guidelines allow, explore a selection of pictures and stories online from the comfort of your own home. nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash 125-portraits-online. The fortunes of whole communities were once linked to a bountiful harvest and traditions and rituals sprang up to encourage its success. Seasonal produce is still a priority for the Trust's nature-friendly farmers today. In the times before modern machinery redefined agriculture, a Cornish farmer winnowing wheat from chaff could be heard whistling if he felt the wind drop. A call to the spriggan or air spirit would bid the wind to return and help him separate the grains as he tossed them in the air. Farming communities all over the world have historic superstitions, traditions and rituals associated with food production. People in Lancashire, for example, would take care to sit their hens on an odd number of eggs, as there was luck in odd numbers. In ancient China, the moon was seen as a symbol of harmony and abundance. People today still celebrate a moon festival, where they gather to eat mooncakes and share folk tales about a moon maiden. People turn to rituals, such as whistling to the spriggan, as a way to encourage a successful harvest. Folk tales around harvest time have been recorded as far back as the Middle Ages. The fortunes of farms, families and entire communities 
were inextricably tied to whether the crop yield would be enough to feed the community and to pay their rent for the year. Communities worked together to gather the harvest, the men reaping the corn using sickles or scythes, the women and children following behind, gathering and tying it into sheaves. Today, modern machinery and a global marketplace have changed the farming landscape considerably. But harvest time remains important for small-scale arable farmers and their local communities. The estate of the Tudor Manor House of Barrington Court in Somerset has four hectares, that's ten acres, of ancient orchard and a long history of cider making. A team of volunteers still harvests and presses the apples each year, just as gangs of pickers would have done hundreds of years ago to make award-winning traditional craft cider. Nature thrives at Lodge Farm on the Harewoods Estate in the Surrey Hills in the fields where tenant farmer Mike Pinard grows varieties of heritage wheat that have been farmed in the southeast since the 18th century. They include Kent Old Hoary, Kent Old Red and Red Lammas, which is the oldest variety on the farm and is recorded as having been planted as far back as 1650. Mike farms the distinctively tall wheat, which can reach 1.5 metres, 5 foot, using a low-impact technique called no-till. He explains, The method of no-till farming is not new. It borrows its technique from nature. We sow seeds directly into the earth using a special drill, which disturbs as little soil as possible. The drill cuts through old vegetation and creates a slot in the ground. Seeds are blown into the slot and a following wheel closes it and firms the ground around the seed. The old vegetation is left on the surface to feed the citizens of the soil, such as bacteria, fungi, worms and beetles, as the nutrients and organic matter end up back in the earth. This method sequesters a lot of carbon from the atmosphere as well. From wheat, rye, barley and oats came bread, beer, oatcakes and porridge pre-industrial staples, which came to hold by far the greatest body of folklore. One of the best-known tales is of John Barleycorn. Songs dating back to the 16th century describe him as a spirit of the grain, grown healthy and hale during the summer, then chopped down during the harvest before being resurrected each year. Some believe he symbolises an ancient deity or spirit of the harvest. Others say... He represents kings who were supposedly sacrificed to the pagan god Krom Kruak of pre-Christian Ireland to ensure a good crop. As the year's harvest concluded, the cutting of the last sheaf of corn was often the subject of much ceremony. The last strand was believed to contain the corn spirit, which had gradually retreated with the progression of the harvest until it reached the final sheaf and there were almost as many different traditions around it as there were farms. In Cornwall and Devon, cutting the last strand was called crying the neck, and involved a chant between the reaper and the farm workers. In Herefordshire, the strand was tied into a bunch to resemble a mare, before reapers threw sickles at it to cut it down. Frequently, the final sheaf was plaited into corn dollies to be shared as a token between young couples or given pride of place in the centre of the harvest feast. The feast, a tradition later embraced by the Christian faith, 
celebrated the end of a hot and tiring harvest time out in the fields. During a churn supper in Yorkshire, a farmer would bring out a whole churn of cream as a reward for the workers. In Sussex, caraway cake was the traditional treat, as it was believed to give strength. After the plenty of the harvest, winter was the time to hunker down. According to Celtic beliefs, the winter festival Samhain, which started at sundown on the 31st of October, was when the boundary between this world and the next was at its thinnest, and spirits of the dead could roam the earth. Samhain is a likely origin of Halloween, which came into existence around the 9th century. Rather than today's familiar pumpkin, people carved ghoulish faces into the sides of the humble turnip to ward off evil spirits. Pumpkins only made their appearance as jack-o'-lanterns in the 19th century, when migrants to the Americas discovered they were far easier to carve than turnips. Next time you tuck into a warming pumpkin soup, crisp apple cider or comforting bowl of porridge, take a moment to pause and consider the wonderful tapestry of culture and tradition surrounding its ingredients. Why not try cooking some of our favourite seasonal recipes? Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash recipes. And now it's time to hear from you. Maureen Pierre in Staffordshire reminisces back to the back-to-backs. Almost a year ago, my friend and I visited the Birmingham back-to-backs. My father and George Saunders, a tailor who was the last person to work at Court 15 in the back-to-backs, were very good friends. My father came from the Caribbean, Trinidad and Tobago, as a tailor and lived in London before moving to Birmingham and meeting George. When I was small... I used to go in the shop in the back-to-backs with my dad and sit on a little stool in front of the counter while dad and George did tailor things. I used to love looking at all the fabric while dad helped George to get orders completed. They are really nice childhood memories and it gave me great pleasure when the trust took over and I got to go and visit the back-to-backs again. Dad still has some bespoke clothing skillfully tailored by George, Dad is now in his mid-80s, and whenever I need anything sewing, I still ask him. He has a terrible old sewing machine that he still uses. Malcolm Hayes, in Kent, remembers his father talking about his own childhood at what's now Mr Straw's house in Nottinghamshire. The mention of Mr Straw's house in the summer 2020 issue reminded me what a gem it is. We have a personal connection to it, as my father, John Allen Hayes, lived there as a child during the First World War, before the Straw family. I took my father back there in July 1998 for a visit, when he was aged around 85. He was born in November 1913, and he recounted how as a child in about 1917 he recalled seeing reflected on his bedroom ceiling, in the to-be Straw's house, the flames of a nearby gasworks which had been bombed by a zeppelin after the blackout was prematurely lifted that night. I took Dad to visit Mr Straw's house again in October 2001 and in 2003. These visits were always enjoyable. Sadly, my father passed in 2007, aged 93, but the memories remained for him, and still do for me, of a lovely place. Thanks for reminding me of fond memories. Felicia Riley in Kent describes her enjoyable virtual visit. 
I have been a trust member for many years and always enjoyed my visits. For the last five years or more, I have been unable to make any visits due to health problems, but I have kept up my membership and I am delighted to learn about the virtual tours available on your website. This morning, I have enjoyed the tour of the Rose Garden at Mottisfont, Hampshire. The roses looked at their best and the commentary was good. You can explore our selection of virtual tours by visiting nationaltrust.org.uk and putting virtual tours in the search box. Mike and Chris Hunter in Suffolk describe being the first visitors back to Sissinghurst when it reopened after lockdown. On the 29th of May, I was woken at 3am by a cuckoo. Unable to return to sleep, I decided to see if I could book tickets for Chris and me to visit Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent on its 3rd of June reopening. We were given the opening slot and were applauded as we arrived by the staff who made us so welcome. Much thought had been put into the system of touring the gardens to maintain social distancing. Well done to the Trust for coping so well with the current difficulties. And finally, Anne Harris in Newport volunteers with the Make, Do and Mend sewing group at Tredega House. She tells us how during lockdown the group switched to making scrubs for the NHS. My husband and I live very close to Tredega House and I began volunteering there as a house host when the Trust took over in 2012, greeting visitors at the front door. Shortly after, about 30 of us set up the Make, Do and Mend group making costumes and dressing up clothes relating to the history of the house for visitors to enjoy. It gives me a buzz to see a whole family dressed up and pretending they're from a historical period. We use recycled fabrics, or buy them if required, to make costumes for exhibitions. We try to make them as accurate as possible, and we're learning all the time. The last dress we made was a costume from 1839, we took photos of the original dress, which is kept in the attic at Tredega, researched it, and reconstructed the exact dress from virtually the same fabric. Not long after lockdown started, we were contacted by a group called the Aniron Bevan Scrubbers about making scrubs for the NHS. We made tops and trousers and bags for them to go in. It felt like we were helping in our own small way. I do miss the house and the group. The volunteers and staff are the best people I've ever worked with. We'll be back at Tredega as soon as we can. It's part of our lives. If you'd like to get involved in volunteering once guidelines allow, please visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash volunteer. Well, that's all from us this autumn issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can call us on 01793 817 400. The National Trust magazine Autumn 2020 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Olivia Vinnell, Neka Akoya and Glenn McCready. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding. All items are copyright. <laughs>